Holy Spirit, we ask you, please now, to teach us. You are the teacher of the Word. You are the giver of the Word, and you are also the one who gives life and enlightens the eyes and gives understanding. And so we ask for that now as we contemplate the great wonder and the great glory of a Savior being born in Bethlehem, a Savior for us who came to give us life through his death. And so help us to marvel in these great truths. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Open up your Bibles again to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. As I mentioned last week, we're going to, my intention is over these next uh, few weeks, to look at the coming of Christ, but to look at it more broadly. And that is then to take us right back to the beginning, to the first instance of God's promise of sending a Savior, sending one who would redeem us from our sin. And my original plan was to begin in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3, but that quickly uh, became expanded out to the whole chapter because we need to understand where we are to know what God has provided for us in Christ. And so last week we looked at the reality of sin entering into the world. Sin entering into the world. Jessica sang it for us this morning in that song, O Holy Night, far as, or the joy of the world we have as far as the curse, curse is found. And in uh, O Holy Night, long lay the world in sin and air repining. And when Christ came, it says the soul felt its worth. What does he mean by that? It means essentially this, that in seeing the redemption and the cost of our redemption in Christ and on the cross, we could see not only our soul's worth in this, that of which Christ was redeeming, but also the cost of that redemption, namely the death and the suffering of the Son of God. So the cross reveals both the grace of God and it reveals the depth of our sin. And so that takes us back to the beginning, to the fall, from the, to the entrance of sin into the world. So let me begin uh, reading in verse 1 of chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, for context. And I'll read this time all the way down to verse uh, 19. All the way down to verse 19. So read that with me. Or listen as I read. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? 
And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat, all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, and yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread until you return to the ground because from it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. And so is the fall of man. The fall of man. The conditions out of which God gave a promise to redeem man and out of which God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we noticed last week, and I want to remind us of, in verses 1 through 7, the problem then that we have, and that is that sin entered into the world. Sin entered into the world. And we noted that out of God's good creation and God's good and ordered creation came a reversal of God's creative design And out of that reversal of God's creative design came chaos and all of the chaos and disorder and disharmony that has ensued. God created all things for His glory. God created all things to be the giver of all good things to His creation that they might flourish on this planet and this universe that He has made that they might have joy and delight in all of the abundance of what He has given and with one another in the delights of human relationship at the apex of which is the relationship of a man and a woman as husband and wife out of which the world was to be populated. There is an order. God created all things. He created man in his image, male and female. He created the man in a unique position of ruler as head. He created the woman as helper In verse 18, and together they were as those made equally in the image of God with their distinctive roles to rule over all that God had made. The reversal came and right at the beginning of verse 1, where no longer was it God over man, over woman, ruling over creation. It was creation in the form of a serpent, embodied beast, embodying the presence of Satan coming to the woman who, in fact, influenced her husband, who ate, and God was at the bottom of that line, and so chaos ensued. Disharmony ensued. There was, 
in this coming of the evil one, the pattern of deception, not only that caused the fall of our first parents, but is the deceit that enslaves all of us as we come into this world. He introduces doubt into the mind of man, doubts about the character of God, doubt about the intentions of God, doubt about the word of God, the trustworthiness of God himself. Did God really say? Surely a good God would not have given such an unreasonable command. He then denied the threats of God. God said, in the day you eat of it, you will die. He says, you surely shall not die. There's no reason to fear disobeying the command of God. In fact, you need to seize this opportunity and live independently of God. You are your own person. You have the opportunity, indeed the responsibility, to lay a hold of what is best for your future and your soul, which is to grasp the wisdom that I am giving to you that will make you equal to God. And so he then deceived And so there was doubt, there was denial, there was deception, and then there was the blind rebellion of the deceived Eve. As we mentioned, Scripture makes clear that Eve was deceived, that she did in fact believe the lie. That does not make her innocent because the deception that she believed and the act of disobedience that she committed was in fact coming from a heart that had already left its place of submission and trust to God and decided to reach out on its own independently in disregard of God's command. Romans 8, 7 says that not to subject yourself to the law of God is to be at hostility with God. She was no longer subjecting herself to the word of God and therefore in that moment, though deceived, set herself up in hostility against God. And therefore, ignorance and deception does not equate innocence and a lack of guilt. And so she ate, and then she gave to her husband Adam and ate, and his was a high-handed and outright rebellion. The tone of the passage and the language indicates that he was, in fact, observing all of these events, that he knew exactly what was going on. And Scripture makes equally clear that Adam was not deceived. What Adam did, he did in full awareness of what he was doing. He was not deceived. It was a high-handed sin. And his not being deceived then does not somehow lessen his guilt. It, in fact, heightens his guilt. It makes him more culpable. He did what he did with a more brazen decision of rebellion against God. And because of his role as head, it is through Adam that sin entered into the world. And so there it is. We are now existing and living and born into what is known as the fallen state of man. To say it is the fallen state is to say that we as humanity have fallen from our state of holiness to the condition of being in sin. And the whole world was now introduced to corruption and the whole being of man, our whole person, was now defiled by sin. And so we see that in verse 7. The eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and they made for themselves loin coverings to hide their nakedness. They became aware of their nudeness, their nakedness, and they hid themselves not because of some external corruption. The garden was still a place of perfection and delight. It wasn't because of some threat they felt on the outside, there was nothing in their environment that had changed at that moment. 
the change took place within the heart and the soul and the mind of man himself. It was an internal corruption that became a reality within. And so was the fall of man from his original state of being without sin, of being in fellowship with God, of flourishing on an earth of abundance and a place of abundance that God had created, and to being in harmony with God, creation, and one another. All of that was now ruined. That original state no longer existed. And so this is the internal corruption that all of us, because we are descendants of Adam and Eve, have inherited. So David said in Psalm 51, you'll remember Psalm 51 verse 5, In sin my mother conceived me. It does not mean it was an adultery. It does not mean it was an illicit affair. It means at the very point of conception within the womb of a woman, there is the nature of sin inherent to us. All of us. It's inescapable. It was inherited from our parents. So we are born corrupt. This is sometimes known as the doctrine of total depravity or total inability. And that simply is a way to recognize what is demonstrated here, and that is that our entire being is corrupted by sin. Our entire being. Now, it's hard for us to recognize for a variety of reasons. By common grace, the image of God still remains in man. And because there is the image of God that remains in man, there are still vestiges of that original righteousness, that still vestiges of what does reflect in some way the nature and the character of God. God has also implemented in creation a variety of ways to restrain the natural evil of man. There is the presence of his people, which is salt, who are salt and light on the earth. There are cultural norms. There is the the restraints of government and law. There are natural restraints of family and shame and a variety of ways that sin is restrained. But it is no less the defining reality of all humanity. Even though we are not as bad as we could be, we are all equally corrupt in heart, mind, soul, and affections. There's no person who has a mind free from sin. Nobody has lived in this world who can say that my mind has been absolutely free from sin. Why? Because we've been corrupted. There's no one who can say my affections are free from sin. There's no one whose life does not bear to some degree, some greater than others, the fruit of internal corruption and disharmony with God And with men. And so the fall brought about then a new relationship with God, with one another, and even with creation itself. So that was point number one. The problem is that sin has entered into the world, and we are all infected with it. The second part then is this the punishment, the consequences that come as a result of that sin. And the punishment then is comprised in both the curse and the evident consequences of this disharmony with God and with one another. And again, this is, this is where we live. If this, if this part is not grasped, then the gospel will lose its wonder and its majesty. And there cannot even be an entrance into the glory of the gospel until we grasp why Christ died. So what are the consequences then of sin? Well, the first consequence is exactly what God promised. 
Where did he promise? Do you remember? The day you eat of it, you'll surely, you can say it, you'll die, right? The day that you eat of it, you will surely die. That was the promise. That is precisely the promise and the threat, if you will, that Satan denied. You surely shall not die. And as we noted before, he sets up a choice. Who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe God? Are you going to believe what I offer you? Even more personally, are you going to believe God or are you going to believe your own intuition? Are you going to rely on what God has said or your own reasons and ability? Well, they made the choice and, in fact, the promise that God threatened became a reality. But you wouldn't notice that at first. It would appear that, in fact, maybe Satan was correct because they ate of the tree and there they stood. On their own two feet, breathing as they had breathed before, standing as they had stood before, thinking and doing as they had done before. Was he, in fact, right? Well, no, they did die. They did die. Death did enter into the world. But death came about not immediately in the sense that we would first have expected, in other words, them dropping physically dead in the moment, but it was, came in a way that was far more profound and deep and far-reaching than they could have ever imagined and that we could have ever have imagined. They did, in fact, at that moment, begin what would be the process of physical death. The death of humanity can be pinpointed to this very moment in Genesis 3. And as I understand it, there is no, just as a point of interest, scientific explanation for why we die. For what begins that process. Scripture explains it to us because God began that process when sin entered into the world. And so he told Adam, from dust you were taken, in verse 19, and to dust you shall return. In other words, you shall die. That was a state of physical death that was confirmed when he put them out of the garden, as he'll say later, and away from the tree of life. No longer access to this tree defined as the tree of life. Forever removed from its presence and in a process of decay. That would end in physical death. And so we see that repeated immediately in chapter 5. Something we'll return to later. And they died. And they died. And he died. And he died. And he died. Death was now a reality. And this is an extremely sobering reality. It's a sobering reality. In fact, there is a very real sense that... Because death now entered into this world and that process began, that everything entered really into a state of vanity. That's the whole point of Ecclesiastes, isn't he? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You're rich, great, you're going to die. You're poor, great, you're going to die. You're wise, great, you're going to die. You're a fool, great, you're going to die. You have great works and your life is very fruitful and the kingdoms and the things that you accomplish in this world, and what is the end? It'll be left to another and go to ruin. There's a vanity to this world when the world is looked at on its own. There's a certain vanity to life. There's a certain meaningless and nothingness to this world in and of itself. And physical death is a constant reminder of that. 
It's a constant reminder that there is an end and ultimately nothing that we accomplish here on its own really amounts to anything at all. It's futility left to its own. There was the physical death then that came not only in terms of the the limits put on this life, but that which comes as an act of judgment of God. We're only a few chapters into Genesis and this death wasn't because of the natural state of decay. It was because of the instant judgment that God brought on all humanity and every single living soul that was on the earth outside of those in the ark, both man and animal, was killed, was drowned. This sin had corrupted the world and God cleansed the world that he had made by killing everyone on it. So physical death began at that moment and would become the lot of men throughout. There's the reality of an eternal death which could not be seen but by their eyes and in fact can't even be seen by our eyes yet. That's mentioned specifically in the New Testament. The lake of fire came into being. And though we cannot see it now, there is a real sense, to borrow the imagery of that great preacher Jonathan Edwards, hell lies open before all men, ready to open its gates and to receive its inhabitants. And so that is the condition, this, this eternal death that awaits all of those outside of Christ. It's the final state of all of the unbelieving. Revelation 21 notes that those who are found outside of God's redemption, are cast into the lake of fire that burns forever. This is the second death. And grasp this, that is the condition and the place and the guaranteed and certain destination of all men outside of Christ. Everyone is in the second death. Is the place of final and eternal punishment. And then there's a third reality of death, of the the promise coming true, and that is a spiritual death. A spiritual death. We're familiar with that described in those words and that language by Paul in Ephesians 2. For you are dead in trespasses and sins. Jesus, Jesus acknowledged that almost as an aside when in Matthew 8 they said, Let me come and just go, I'll follow you after I bury my parents, essentially. And he says, Let the dead bury their own dead. They are, they are spiritually Dead, let them care for their own. If you want life, come and follow me. So in a paradoxical way, all of us are then born dead. All of us are born dead. And at the moment we take our first breath in this world and give the signs of life, we begin the process that is moving towards death and the end of life. And so Paul said in Romans 5, That therefore just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And it happened here. And it's because of this reality of spiritual death that we need new birth. Why do we need regeneration? Because we don't need to rejuvenate or somehow refresh our slightly sick and fallen state. We need nothing less than completely new life given by God himself, spiritual life. Now then, what is the condition? What is the condition then of this fall? What is the predicament? Well, not only is there this internal corruption that came as a consequence that here, 
manifest by their seeing each other with new eyes and hiding themselves from God, there's also this reality of Satan having obtained a new position. And so he is described, Satan, as the God of this world. The God of this world, who blinds the minds of the unbelieving. First John says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Colossians says that we were delivered from the dominion of Satan, the rule, the authority of Satan into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ. So in this sense, Satan has a measured authority granted to him by God. He rules and he holds captive fallen men, wielding the same powers of deception that he displayed here with Adam and Eve. And except our situation is far more dire than it was for Adam and Eve. For Adam and Eve were without sin and in a sinless environment. They had nothing internally by nature to incite them towards sin and they had nothing externally by their environment to incite them and move them towards sin and yet they sinned through the deception of Satan. Our condition is far worse. Far worse. For we are born into a world where every condition is designed to cause us to sin. Where everything in us has a proclivity, has a natural leaning towards sin and corruption. And so the power of Satan that he wielded over Eve and deception and Adam and Eve and leading them to sin is far greater and far worse for us. And it's supported now by thousands of years of his perfecting his craft and setting the precedent of this fallen condition of man to almost validate his work. And for this reason, Paul could say then, of those of us, or those who are outside of Christ, that Satan, they are held captive by him to do his will. Held captive by him to do his will. So this is the condition. This is the condition. This is the problem that sin entered into the world. A consequence is that there is now internal corruption and there is disharmony and fellowship with God, with one another. And there is the powerful, blinding, authoritative rule of Satan who holds captive men to do his will. And though he appears as an angel of light, his sole objective is to bring as many of God's image bearers down to eternal destruction with himself as he can out of great hatred and anger against God and hatred and anger against everyone who belongs to him. That takes out the mystery of our culture, doesn't it? And our entertainment. Why is it the way that it is? Because of Genesis 3. So what are the characteristics of this death? I'm going to go try to get through these, this section quickly. Because we want to get to the good news, which is going to be next week. I focus on the good news. The first is this. And this has been mentioned. There's a ruin of fellowship with God. Rather than make them like God, their sin made us estranged from God. Estranged from our true source of joy and happiness. It ruined our conscience. Once clean and clear is now sullied and corrupted. Weighted down with a sense of shame and the anxiety of guilt. That is the lot of men. Again, there was the reality and is of internal corruption. Their eyes were opened. And it's not so much that they were aware of their nudity, as if, although that is a part of it. 
it is that they were aware now of this new condition of shame that attended their nudity. Their being without clothes, which before had no cause for shame, no cause for a sense of threat from the other person, no illicit or selfish desire within them toward the other person that would have caused shame in any way, and yet now that is what defined it. Again, it's total depravity. Sin had corrupted every part of them. And there is this now eternal awareness, internal awareness of their moral guilt. Although, let me just make a side note here. Guilt, beloved, is not something that we primarily feel. It's something that we are. You don't have to feel guilty to be guilty. They felt it in a unique sense here because they had just moved from this state. But being struck with the feeling of guilt doesn't validate our guilt any more than if we were completely free from the feeling of guilt. It is a legal consequence of our fall and of the reality of sin. But they felt it. They felt it deeply. They felt it deeply. And men generally do, which is why Paul said in Romans 1.18 that we naturally want to suppress the truth and unrighteousness and hold it down because it reveals it to us. Our conscience, as it bears witness to our guilt, we have one objective, and that is to silence it. Again, that's the role of the law. He says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We read it earlier. We need the law to tell us who we really are. But the natural state, again, is that of fallenness and that of darkness. That means, then, that the whole perception that we come into this world with of self and the world is tainted by the reality of sin. We cannot perceive ourselves or this world without the influence of sin. Just listen to this one verse out of Titus 1.15. To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. It means that you can't, as an unbeliever, we can't look at anything rightly. We can't perceive anything rightly. We can't perceive ourselves rightly because we can't perceive God rightly and we can't listen to truth rightly. And so therefore, everything about our perception spiritually in a sense of spiritual discernment is corrupted and blind. And that is why we need new eyes and the... The evidence of new life is that we have eyes to see and ears to hear that were before blind and deaf. So there is this internal corruption. There was a desire then to hide from God's presence. We read it. They sewed fig leaves together, made for themselves loin coverings. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. It's an interesting theme throughout here, the trees. God made the trees as abundance. It was at the tree of life and the knowledge of good and evil. The trees that were God's provision are now a place of their hiding. It was a tree that Christ would be crucified on. He was hung on a tree. But here they are hiding themselves from God. And so what is the result of our sin is that we do not seek God's presence. We, in fact, try to get away from it. God's presence was now and is now a threat and a cause for fear for those who are in sin. It's even possible there's a foreshadowing here of 
Mount Sinai when God's presence would again be revealed in a unique way to the nation and they would hide from God. Moses, you go up before God. We can't go up to such a presence. Why? Because it made them so aware of their sin and their guilt. But the most tragic consequence here is this. That this fellowship with God for which we were created... And God himself, which is the delight of everything our souls were made to find joy in, to find beauty in, to find hope in, to find goodness in, is now the one from whom we try to hide ourselves. He who created us, provided us with all good things, who made us to delight in his fellowship with good gifts, who gave us life, who is himself the embodiment, the very essence of love and all that is beauty, beautiful and holy, is now the one that we try to run from and not to run to. His presence is repulsed and feared. Instead of joy and delight, humanity hides from perfect love and holiness and goodness. Why? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's an odd condition. Everything that we delight in and find beautiful finds its perfection in God, and yet we want nothing to do with the true God. And why is that? It's because He is perfection itself. And in the presence of perfection, our defection and our sin is revealed. So when we come into the presence of God, we're not struck with our goodness, we're struck with our shame. And we're struck with our guilt. And it threatens our independence. We don't come into the presence of God as a co-equal, as a counselor. We come in as one is created and under him, under his absolute rule and authority, which is a good rule and authority, but it threatens that deep aspect of our sin, which is autonomy, to be our own person apart from God. But here's the glory of it. Though they hide, God is seeking them. God is seeking them. And though God seeks, left to ourselves, we would continually run away, continually hide, continually live in darkness, and continually live in the rebellion of our own hearts and desires. That is sin's instinctive reaction is to hide. So this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest their deeds will be exposed. So the intuitive response that we have as human beings is to hide our guilt, to hide it from others, to hide it from ourselves, and to hide it from God, or at least to minimize it. We hate to have our sin exposed. What is the surest way to get a reaction of anger is to expose someone else's sin, right? That is what causes more than anything a hatred of the gospel. Our first and natural instinct is to defend ourselves and to attack the revealer. Jesus said to his brothers in John 7, The world hates me. Why? Because I expose its deeds as evil. And we hate that exposure. Matthew 7 says, Be careful whom you confront with sin. Why? Lest they turn and they tear you to pieces. Why? Because we hate to have our sin exposed. We like to hide. We like to hide. And so the more that light reveals, the more exposure to truth that comes, the more threatened darkness feels, and the more natural hatred of God comes out. That's why 
as culture moves further and further away from any sense of righteousness, the church becomes more and more hated equally with it. It's exactly parallel. The further away from any sense of morality, sexual purity, truth and honesty, obedience, submission to authority, the more the culture has moved away from that, the more the church becomes a threat to it by being light and the more that it is hated. And it must be silenced. You want to know why these political battles go on? That's why. That's why. And so there was a a hiding from God that is inherent to our human nature. There's also a selfish disharmony in every human relationship. Look at what he says. So he goes in. He says, uh, God comes and graciously confronts them. And I say graciously confronts them through the question because he's listening out of them. He's trying to repentance, acknowledgement of sin, which they would not do. What happens? What comes out of his mouth? Well, who told you that you were naked? Verse 12, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave it to me from the tree and I ate. The woman, the serpent, deceived me. First, Adam blames both God and the woman. Adam blames God for creating the circumstances that led to his being influenced. He blames Eve for being the instrument of influence that instigated his rebellious act. And he blamed everybody else and found fault with everybody else except the one, get this, who actually disobeyed. Who actually disobeyed? Adam. Adam. Who did he find fault with? Everybody but the one who actually did it. He actually sinned. He wanted to hide. That's just another form of hiding, blame shifting. And this is, again, the fundamental tendency of our fallenness. And let me suggest to you that it is strengthened and justified and given a mask of intellectual credibility. And I do call that a mask of intellectual credibility. Through the rise of modern psychology and one of its fruits, the self-esteem movement. That might be anathema to some, but that is reality. By self-esteem, I do not mean the proper sense of human dignity each person should have as being made in the image of God. There is a dignity that we have as humanity that we should delight in, we should acknowledge. Rather, I mean by this, the ideology that places the idea of personal worth as the highest priority of self-identity and self-nurture and self-love as the most fundamental pursuit necessary to live a happy and fully functioning life. That's the idea of self-esteem, is you cannot be a self-actualized person. You cannot be one who does any good until you are fully and completely in love and at peace with yourself. I think that sounds familiar. Days will come, difficult times, where men will be lovers of self. And what does that make us, a more peaceful society, a more generous people? No, it makes us people who are lovers of money. Boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. Why would you be grateful if you're only getting what you deserve? Irreconcilable. I'm not going to lower myself in an argument to make peace. Malicious gossips without self-control, brooders, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God. So modern psychology, secular religion works exactly against the gospel to deny ourselves, to yield ourselves into the lordship of Christ. 
and by redefining sin, if everything is a sickness and an illness and a disease and a disorder, there is no hope in that. How Christ didn't come to forgive a disease or a sickness or a disorder. He came to redeem from sin. And until sin is acknowledged, there can be no understanding and appropriation of redemption. When we identify sin as sin, and this is what he was trying to draw out to them, when we acknowledge our sin, yes, it's personally devastating. Yes, it is personally bringing us to a state of the shame of our fallenness, but it is also the path to forgiveness and to joy, to blessing, to restoration, to hope, to know the goodness of God. When we identify our sin and acknowledge our sin before God, there's hope, but there's no hope outside of it. The Holy Spirit does not give a, gives us power to put to death the deeds of the flesh. He does not give us power to put to death oppositional defiant disorder or impulse control disorder. But he does give us power to overcome disobedience to authority and the sin of disobedience to parents. He does give us the power to overcome our subjection to our own fleshly desires. So there is hope in acknowledging our sin The blame is not placed on a responsible human being when we call it something else. But our real problem is disordered desires, culpable decisions. We are responsible moral agents. So he calls out to them, and yet, as we do, the first response to being exposed for sin is blame shifting, is denial, is hiding. Adam blamed God, he blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and yet it didn't change a thing about the reality of their sin, did it? It didn't change a thing, nor does it with us. Whatever we call it, however we rationalize it, whatever we want to do to get out from under the full shame of our disobedience, it doesn't change a thing. Not a thing. It is fully exposed before God. Can you imagine what man outside of Christ will feel when with perfect, absolute clarity standing before the holiness of God and the books are open and what is is called what is. Not the false world that we've made. So here he exposes them and they're out of disharmony. Obviously with God because they were hiding. Disharmony with Eve. Rather than protecting Eve, rather than seeking her good, Rather than seeking to come and to cover and be a defender, he in fact lays full blame on her. And if Adam could have his way, she could have borne the full guilt while he went free. He no longer loved her. He no longer protected her. He no longer nourished her. He in fact accused her to save himself. The whole history of the world is a display of this brokenness of men. The whole history of the world. If you read world history, you are reading a testimony that illustrates the fall. If you read the history of our lives, you're reading a history of the testimony of the fall. And so this is the condition. Again, we sang it, right? Far as the curse is found, joy to the world. In sin and error pining, the, the world lay. And so mankind fell into a state of spiritual ruin and corruption. 
and brought about a divine curse. First mentioned in verse 14. Now we're going to come back and look at this, this whole section a little bit more clearly next week and looking at the promise and tracing out the promise of God. But let's, let's introduce it here. And so he pronounced a curse. He pronounced a curse. Verse 14, the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Now I want you to just notice a couple of observations that we'll mention again in this whole section here from 14 to 19. One, God only pronounces a curse on Satan and he pronounces a curse on the ground. He does not pronounce a curse on Adam or on Eve specifically. He curses here the serpent and later in verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you. Note number two, God's pronouncement of sin's consequence is attended with the promise of its defeat and a demonstration of his covering grace. In the very pronouncement of judgment, he says in verse 15, you shall bruise, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And then he illustrates in verse 21, and the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. Now, how are we to understand the nature of this curse? How do we understand the nature of this curse? There, there is here a literal and an essential aspect, reality to this curse. What is the literal? Well, remember, this is not an analogy. This is not mythology. This is not some sort of mystical story. He's dealing with real people, flesh and blood, real things. And so... When he, the Lord God said to the serpent, he is actually speaking to a beast identified as a serpent. It's a, physical, it's a physical thing. It's a part of creation. And so he puts a physical curse on it, which is defined as moving about on its belly and eating dust all the days of its life. He speaks to the serpent not as an irrational animal, but as a creature whose body was used out of its creative purpose to bring about the destruction of humanity's well-being and fellowship with God. And so while he ultimately is addressing Satan, we'll mention in a bit, he is also addressing Satan through the instrument or the medium of the serpent. And so because the body of a serpent was used, it is the body of a serpent that will bear the marks of the curse. And here it is by God's design, crawling on its belly. What is the point of that? What is the point of that? It's a continual reminder of the fall, the banishment of the serpent to crawl on the dust of the earth. What purpose does that hold? It holds this. What are we to gain? It is designed to be demeaning and to be a picture of the ignobility that God had consigned this creature to because of its use in the fall. In other words, there's a dishonor. There's a dishonor of being the lowest, as it were, of all of the creatures of the field. Let me give you just a couple of examples of this. The way that 
This is actually mentioned a few other times, three times in Scripture. Let me give you just, again, a couple of examples. Micah 7, 17 says this. He says, They will lick, he's speaking of the judgment of the nations whom he will bring dishonor. He says, They will lick the dust like a serpent, like reptiles of the earth. They will come out trembling of their fortresses. To the Lord God, to the Lord our God, they will come in dread and they will be afraid before you. Picture of their judgment, of the ignobility of their position was that they would eat the dust like a serpent. Let me give you just a couple more. Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 23 says this, Kings will be your guardians and their princes... Princesses, your nurses, they will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet and you will know that I am the Lord your God. In other words, they will be humbled and ashamed before you. Let me give you one other verse. This one more than anything. Isaiah 65 is looking to this restored creation. And he says this, and this is in the midst of a a rejuvenated earth. A regenerated earth, really based on Matthew 19. This is coming millennial kingdom of Christ. He says this, It will come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. So the curse is taken away from the enmity between the animal creation. No longer will they eat each other, but live in harmony. But, he says in verse 25, And dust will be the serpent's food. And they will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain. Even in the midst of this rejuvenated creation in which animal enmity is removed and there is a harmony, the judgment on the serpent remains and he will eat dust as a sign of his ignoble position of all of the creatures of the earth. Forever bearing the reminder as long as this present creation stands of the wickedness that he, its body was used to bring into the earth. So what is the point of him crawling on the dust of this physical judgment on a reptile, on a creature? It is ignobility, dishonor, being the lowest of all. He then says, I'll put enmity between you, your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, you'll bruise him on the heel. Now, the... Latin Vulgate uh, has here that she will bruise you on the head based on uh, some textual evidence that doesn't exist and has been renownedly uh, disproved. But that was the chosen translation by the Roman Catholic Church to justify the exalted positions of Mary within the medieval Catholic Church. But here it's not. It's he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, there is here commonly seen and uh, a rightness to this that within the creaturely world, this is a pronouncement of the constant enmity that exists between serpents and the woman, between reptiles and men, particularly the woman. And you can see that throughout history, the way often they are represented. And so there is that literal aspect. And yet he's speaking of something more, something far more. He's speaking of a, 
of a seed. He's collectively here by his seed and her seed identifying two classes and categories of humanity. Of humanity. And ultimately, the clash and the enmity that exists between these two categories is going to end in blood and pain, but not equally. One will be in a final death blow and one in merely the suffering that will come because of this condition of sin. Well, we have to leave it here, and that's fine, because that's what we're going to focus on next week. So we'll mention just briefly the curse to come to Adam and Eve, or to the ground, and to Eve. But let me leave you with this hope and this promise. And it is simply this, that God has not left us without hope. He did not leave humanity, though the fall was great, without hope. And what we celebrate in this table, what we celebrate right now, is in fact the testimony of God's faithfulness to this very promise. The kingdom of Satan forever destroyed. When we take these elements, we are symbolically testifying that there is a kingdom that is coming that has utterly destroyed the work of the devil. It is the kingdom of Christ to whom we belong to whom and by whom we have been redeemed, whom we honor, whom we submit to, whom we love, and whom we remember has been said so many times and sung about in this Christmas season as the one who was born, that he might die, that we might live. So let me pray, and then we'll have the men come forward and uh, ask out these elements. Father, thank you for giving us the clarity of your word to testify to us of what is real, what is reality. And while the curse is found far, as again we sing in the hymn, and though the world lay in darkness and sin, air repining, there is another half to the song, and there's another part, a greater part, a more glorious part and it is not that we fail but that you would Christ Jesus taste the consequences of that fall yourself and for us by becoming a curse on the tree rising from the dead and giving us life and indeed our life is in you and it is life glorious we have tasted and found that you are good we have tasted and found that you are true Help us to walk in the light of that truth. Keep us from the corruptions that still remain in our heart and help us, Holy Spirit, to put them to death. Keep us from the influence of the one who would lead our minds astray from the simplicity of devotion to Christ and cause us to renew our minds continually that we might have your mind, O Christ, as it is in your word. Think your thoughts after you and have all of our desires and affections ordered properly not defiled, but ordered properly, pointing toward and delighting in you and that kingdom that is to come. Help us, O oh God. Thank you for redemption. Thank you for the forgiveness of sin. Thank you for gathering us here today. 
to your honor and praise. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.